Welcome to episode 179 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome and thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Our interview today is with Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Deputy Undersecretary at the Office of Cybersecurity and Communications at the Department of Homeland Security. So she's the Chief uh, cybersecurity uh, uh, official at the department today. Um, joining us for the news roundup is Stephen Heifetz, uh, formerly with DOJ, DHS, and the CIA, and a partner and co-chair of Steptoe's International Regulation Compliance Practice. Stephen, shouldn't you be as old as I am to have all that? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, don't, don't I'm gonna take the fifth. <laughs> Uh, and Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, skilled litigator and chair of the firm's class action practice. Welcome, Jennifer. Hey, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and I am as old as Stuart Baker uh, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in. The reason I wanted Stephen especially to come uh, today is that uh, President Trump has finally started to show his hand on CFIUS uh, uh, by blocking a major semiconductor acquisition by a Chinese uh, state uh, funded uh, venture capital firm. Uh, uh, Stephen, what, do, what does this tell us? So the decision by the president was widely expected uh, every time uh, Cepheus has... was Lattice. Right? That's right. Lattice, uh, semiconductor. Lattice semiconductor um, uh, and Canyon Bridge, which was a uh, an entity that had been set up with Chinese financing. And uh, that combination of the Chinese financing and uh, the sensitivity concerns about the sensitivity of the semiconductor industry uh, led to Cepheus's recommendation that the president block it and then uh, President Trump blocking it. That is only the fourth time that a president has acted to block a transaction because most of the time when Cepheus says uh, we're going to have to make this recommendation, uh, the parties abandon the transaction. They don't force it to the president. Because there's sort of a scarlet letter effect. That's right. Uh, so um, is, this the, is it normal for the Treasury to make this announcement? Or in the past, I thought the White House had made that, that kind of announcement. Yeah, it was a little bit unusual uh, to have – there was a, an executive order, which was the mechanism for blocking it, that, that standard – um, but the press release was issued by Treasury, which does chair the, uh, the CFIUS process. But one of the noteworthy things about the, the press release was that Secretary Mnuchin made a statement at the end that notwithstanding the, this block, uh, that the United States is maintaining an open investment policy, uh, which and they, I think and they, they couldn't find anybody else in the White House. They, was they, to they, say they that. might not have been able to find it, and that really has been a question that a lot of uh, people watching the CFIUS and uh, FD Foreign Direct Investment uh, have had is whether the U.S. is maintaining that open investment policy. CFIUS, there are many many deals that are particularly China deals, but not limited to China deals that are sort of hanging out there that have taken a lot longer to clear and it's um, and many uh, people are interpreting this uh, as a signal though I think 
this is probably not the best deal from which to read uh, broader implications because the semiconductor industry, I think folks knew, was very sensitive. So I think more interesting will be what happens on many of these other matters, which have not uh, not been decided, uh, and Secretary Mnuchin's statement that uh, we continue to want foreign investment uh, perhaps is an indicator that many of these deals and future deals uh, have a chance. Yeah, although, I mean, I'm hearing that the landscape for CFIUS is just very different in this administration, that the agencies that traditionally ride uh, to the rescue of the foreign investor or the State Department, USTR, sometimes commerce, are just not saddling up, I, or, or they're riding the other direction. I, I think that's right. I, um, the, those agent, commerce and USTR in particular are headed by uh, people with very different views about the U.S. role in international trade. And so when you uh, have a case that is uh, hit a hurdle, as uh, cases sometimes do, the, the usual places to seek help like commerce and USTR are less likely in the current administration uh, to provide that help, to, to say to some of the security agencies, uh, that's not such a good argument. So I, uh, but I, I, I thought I saw that Steve Bannon said it's all down to him. I... I, that was a, yes, uh, the press has reported uh, today that uh, Bannon has said uh, that he's that, that commerce and USTR and others are following his lead uh, in uh, a more draconian approach to FDI. So, uh, the well, the lattice semiconductor Canyon Bridge deal was expected to come out as it did. Uh, we'll see over the course of the next couple months uh, whether Bannon holds sway uh, and other deals are blocked, or whether Mnuchin's more uh, softer, we still want FDI uh, uh, carries the day for some of these deals. How many how many cases kind of hanging fire, slowly drifting in that uh, uh, swirl? I think there are the, the rumors are that there are more than a dozen, and maybe half are China related. Uh, there may be as many as twenty, uh, with half China. Related. All right, so more news to come for sure, huh? Uh, as uh, uh, as this plays out. Uh, um, for those of you who listened to uh, last uh, uh, episode's uh, debate on 702, uh, um, there's a little um, straw in the wind about where Congress is going, or at least the Judiciary, uh, House Judiciary Committee, uh, um, uh, uh, Chairman Goodlatte, uh, former Chairman Sensenbrenner, and uh, unnamed other uh, uh, participants in the Judiciary Committee in the House have said they're going to support renewal of 702, but with changes both in the upstream program, which we've already talked about. They want to get rid of about collection, uh, uh, which, of course, is not now being uh, performed because the uh, NSA couldn't find a way to do that without getting into compliance trouble, uh, um, and it decided to sacrifice intelligence uh, um, uh, for the short term in the hopes that later it could find a way to do this. Uh, the Judiciary Committee's position apparently is, uh, oh, well, we'll never need that intelligence. What the hell? Let's just get rid of it permanently. Um, a, and also restrictions that they'd like to put on uh, uh, FBI searches of the 702 database for Americans essentially imposing a probable cause and warrant requirement. That's probably, if I read the 
tea leaves right uh the maximalist position from the lefty libertarian uh, uh side of the debate uh, um a, a, the house has always been a little more radical uh, on these things and this may be the only issue that the um uh left and right wings of the Judiciary Committee can agree on, and they're as far apart as you can be. Uh, uh, other parts of the government, and especially on the Senate, may be less enthusiastic about these limitations on our ability to gather intelligence, uh, but we'll see. Um, Jennifer, the other big news of the week was... Uh, just kind of constant reverberation from the Equifax hack, uh, uh, 143 million records, and now apparently a lawsuit for every one of the records. Uh, it, uh, how is it, how's the environment shaping up, especially the class action and litigation environment shaping up? Right. So the perfect storm is, is sort of here, um, and, and they've got a feast of problems, and the number of unappetizing items on the menu just continues to grow. Uh, so the, the factual revelation last week, of course, was the source of the, the breach, um, which was the, um, the Apache Structs bug. And the, the key fact about that was that there was a patch for that out about two months before they believed the breach actually occurred, which, which is a tough you know, story it, to it tell. Is, it is a tough story to tell, although from what I hear – Struts is a widely used tool, and uh, uh, to fix it, you have to go into every single app and make an app-specific change to uh, uh, to cure the the, the breach, uh, to cure the the the, the hole, uh, and that doesn't mean that what Aquifax did was right, but it makes it a little more understandable that it would have taken them a while to do it. Correct. But I think the the thing that's always going to be the focus in this situation is the nature of the data that they had access to and the scope of the data mm-hmm. that they had access to. And was that a reasonable, the test is always going to be whether that was a reasonable response. Oh, I know. It's just, it's just ugly when, when that this is the downside of all the forensic data we have now. We know exactly what happened. We know it within 24 hours. Uh, uh, and Almost by definition, somebody screwed something up to have a breach this big, and now the class action gets to uh, uh, pursue that. Right, and the class action to some degree will piggyback on what the government is doing. Um, right? So the FTC so is in? FTC is in, confirmed last week that they're investigating. Uh, they're Two congressional committees that have scheduled uh, at least two. There may be more two. now. Yeah, um, and I believe the CEO is set to uh, go in for his public flogging on uh, October third. <laughs> and uh, based on statements from people like Senator Schumer, who compared this to the Enron debacle, you know, this is not an environment where he's going to find a lot of friends. <laughs> the yeah. CEO, and uh, and of course, it's not Enron, right? This is there's no evidence of deliberate uh, fraud here. Well, I mean, that depends if you. Ask the cla- I mean, likely that's correct, but if you ask the uh, plaintiffs in the uh, class action and derivative space who have been looking at the executives' trading records, maybe yeah. not so fast. Well, right? no, the trading, uh, the, uh, you know, the, yes, they say that the trades were made by people who didn't know about the uh, uh, breach, but these were high-ranking people. You kind of wonder how, why they didn't know about the breach. Right. I mean, so that, and that's always the question, right? The old adage, bad facts being bad law, right? So here you've got. Um, an unusual set of circumstances uh, with respect to the securities and derivative types cla- type claims. Um, those have been bar- brought with respect to prior breaches without 
great success in most but cases. The, the, the stock market is down like 20%. Actually, I think at one point last week, it was down as far as 32%. That's and so, ugly. you know, whether it's just the nature of Equifax's business and the sort of critical nature of the ability to maintain the security of this information with respect to their business that led to the drop, um, you know, there is some speculation that maybe uh, the track record on those kinds of claims will be different here. Um, because there isn't usually a stock drop. Although they still, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm not carrying a brief for Equifax, but it's not clear that anybody's actually been harmed by this breach, right? Well, I mean, as, as of this moment, right? right? But I mean, as everybody's been saying, the, the, the completeness of the information that they had makes this a, a threat for some time to come. Um, the other thing that people are speculating about is whether the SEC might sort of view this this one a little differently. Yeah, they, um, they absolutely might. Uh, I, I think they've been looking for somebody who didn't disclose in time. Uh, and plus they have the stock trades to look at. It's, right. And what representations have they made about the security mm-hmm. of their data, if any? And is there enough for somebody? You know, if they're looking for an example, the, the problem for Equifax is that they're such a big target that they're that they're an appealing one. Um, and then the last thing, Stuart, as you said, you know, in addition to the securities um, the securities matters and the derivative things that are being explored, there are about 30 uh, lawsuits that have been filed as of early last week and, you know, state AGs piling on. And of so, course, of course. Right. The shoot, never shoot, ending out, out to the battlefield to shoot the wounded. Right, yeah. exactly. And the sort of the, con- the, per- the sort of recurring puffs of smoke that will come out of all of these different proceedings will provide fuel for the private litigation as well. Okay. Well, you will at least will um, not have to worry about work for the next uh, few years uh, <laughs> if this sets the tone. Uh, all right. And, um, Stephen, uh, I know you do a lot of sanctions work. Uh, the Treasury has announced what I think is the Trump administration's first sanctions on hackers. They went after a couple of um, companies that had aided in denial of service attacks on U.S. banks uh, three or four years ago. Uh, uh, Any thoughts on what this tells us about how the Trump administration's uh, approach to hacking is going to differ from the Obama administration's? As far as I can tell, the the approach as to uh, hackers uh, doesn't differ significantly. I think this is uh, further uh, indication that the, the Trump administration hates the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal, but doesn't want to tear it up. Uh, of course, he announced many times during the campaign that he would tear it up, um, but instead has just sort of poked holes in it, including this this latest hole by finding uh, other areas, other sanctions regimes uh, that where they can say uh, this isn't uh, doesn't go to the heart of the nuclear deal, um, and it's important for our uh, cybersecurity purposes and consistent with what we're doing. I think it's right that it is consistent with uh, cybersecurity sanctions levied in the Obama administration, um, but uh, it sort of again raises the question of what is the end game with respect to the Iran nuclear deal. So, so he's playing picador to uh, Iran on this one. Uh, uh, on the cyber side, I, I think it's kind of remarkable. We've had three of the most different presidents possible uh, uh, in the last three, uh, and their cybersecurity policies are absolutely 
straight continuations of both uh, uh, of the last administration. I think that's right, and some of the cybersecurity personnel are uh, the <laughs> yes, same true. throughout those <laughs> those administrations. Um, and you know that's probably a good thing. Uh, the, uh, the continuity in that space is probably uh, wise. All right. Um, so the uh, we can't go. Uh, the, the one area where it differs is uh, what to do about Russia and its hacking uh, uh, and abuse of our electoral process. Uh, uh, and there, there's obviously a big difference between the Obama. Uh, Ait's view, though maybe not so much their actions and this administration's, uh, um, that probe is largely silent, uh, which is probably good news for the uh, Trump administration. Uh, uh, but Facebook uh, has gone to the Hill to, to talk about ads taken out by the Russians. Uh, uh, and uh, I thought as I said last time, this is not going to end well for social media. Um, it, the, uh, uh, the, the story recently is that uh, Mueller got access to all of the ads and all of the data about the ads, uh, um, but the Intelligence Committee didn't. And the reason is that uh, Facebook, like every other Silicon Valley company, has adopted a policy that says you can't get the content of communications with us, apparently including ad buys, uh, um, without a search warrant. Um, and... Uh, the uh, uh, Senate Intelligence Committee doesn't have authority to issue search warrants. Only uh, um, the FBI and the Justice Department and Bob Mueller under his authorities can produce a search warrant. Uh, this is a policy that um, the Justice Department sort of blessed under the uh, uh, Obama administration in which uh, Silicon Valley basically has said, well, we'll litigate anybody who, who tries to uh, impose a subpoena on us. Uh, and meanwhile, we'd like Congress to pass a law making it absolutely clear that you have to have a, uh, a search warrant to get content. I think that proposal's dead now after uh, this debate, because basically you're saying to the Senate Intelligence Committee, yeah, you're going to always be a second-class citizen. Since you ain't got no search warrants, we'll never tell you stuff you're interested in. Um, uh, so this is a, a situation where the uh, the Russia probe is t costing casualties in very surprising places. So I, that uh, that's my observation about uh, uh, how the Russia probe is uh, uh, producing Actually, you know, more generally, I think the Russia probe is producing a backlash against social media generally. Um, the assumption on the part of a lot of Democrats that uh, uh, social media took ads, didn't tell anybody about it, uh, had a big influence on the election because of uh, the, the, the false stories that were circulated. Uh, and so everybody now on the left is getting mad at social media. And on the right, they've been mad ever since uh, um, you know, Twitter took down Milo Yiannopoulos on the ground that he was uh, uh, a troll or something. Uh, I, and so uh, increasingly, I think Silicon Valley, which has been paying for Washington representation at a princely uh, uh, budget for the last 20 years is finally actually going to 
need some Washington representation that, uh, because they are suddenly deeply unpopular with a large chunk of the American people. Um, so that's my observation. The, the, the next year is going to be a rough one for social media. All right. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, standing law in lawsuits uh, uh, over breaches. Uh, um, the Eighth Circuit gave us clarity or two attempts <laughs> at clarity. I, I'm not quite sure whether they made it worse or made it clearer. Uh, I don't know. In either case, though, the, the, what both of those rulings show uh, is that it's not that easy. It's not that easy to succeed on a data breach uh, class action claim. So within a couple days of each other, two different panels of the Eighth Circuit reached what seemed to be divergent results about uh, what's sufficient to show standing in a data breach uh, class action. All of these cases are trying to implement the Supreme Court's decision uh, in the Spokio case from, I think, two terms ago now. Uh, and basically, in one case, the super value case, uh, the, eighth, the Eighth Circuit panel con- concluded that uh, the mere threat of uh, identity theft without evidence of uh, improper charges on your cards uh, was not enough. And then uh, it, right around the same time, another panel – uh, in, and, and so the, the super value case, uh, has sided with really the my, minority of the circuits that are out there, uh, taking a different position than, for example, the, the Seventh Circuit in the Neiman Marcus, Neiman Marcus case. And then, uh, around the same time, another panel in the Scott Trade case, uh, the plaintiff in that case alleged that he had effectively paid a price premium to go with a brokerage that had sufficient and good, adequate data security measures in place and that, in fact, he didn't get what he bargained for. So that's and his his damages are he paid too much. Price yeah. premium, yeah. right, which is a theory that has been applied as nauseum in the uh, sort of concrete products right. space. Um, and uh, here the court said, well, that was sufficient for standing, but there was no evidence of breach. There were no uh, alleged misrepresentations or promises that Scott tr- that had been identified with respect to cybersecurity that uh, Scott Trade had failed to fulfill, and so the case was still dismissed. Oh, so he he, he if he paid a premium, he, it wasn't because a premium was offered. Uh, sorry, that premium service was offered. It was just that he said, "I paid too much." Uh, right, I picked Scott Trade instead of E Trade or whatever it is. Right, and so uh, on the one hand, this suggests that maybe at least in the Eighth Circuit. People who have um, ongoing relationships with um, a uh, company, for example, a service contract of some kind, uh, you know, maybe are in better situated than someone who goes to Neiman Marcus to buy a pair of shoes. But in the end, you've still got to show some promise that was made that hasn't been delivered on. So for Equifax, right, they, they don't even deal with customers, the consumers most of the time. All the people whose data was breached uh, – they didn't pay Equifax a nickel, uh, so they're not going to be, be able to have that argument, are they? Well, they're not going to be able to do the service contract type of thing. I mean, I guess my question is, well, okay, but what about the people who do give information to Equifax or who use Equifax for checks? So if the banks wanted to sue, they probably could, um, but I'm not sure you know, they don't have the same cost structure here. No, but they might have. So, but there are people who have contractual relationships with Equifax, right, to do these checks for them. Employers, right. 
you know, lenders. It's, fair enough. And they keep the data that the employers provide, if I remember right. That's part of the deal. Uh, uh, but I, I think this does uh, put a uh, flag on the idea that until we actually see some use of the Equifax data, um, uh, the cases may not really take off. They may not produce big damages. Uh, I, and I, uh, this is my prediction. Uh, four months from now, uh, the political hoo-ha over this will have died down unless somebody is actually using those records for some illegal purpose. Well, I guess the other issue with the Aquifax breach is that given that it essentially affects everybody, right. <laughs> uh, you know, how do you show that whatever data loss you had or improper charges you had were as a result of the Equifax Fair breach enough. as opposed to anything else? You know, I mean, um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, that's right. So my data was stolen and I woke up this morning with a headache. That's just, <laughs> oh. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, that's our news roundup. Uh, and now on to our interview with Jeanette Manfred, the Acting Deputy Undersecretary, the Office of Cybersecurity and Communications at the Department of Homeland Security. So, Jeanette, let me start with Einstein and continuous diagnostics and uh, monitoring or mitigation, depending on how politically correct mm -hmm. you are. Um, it, it's, it's DHS's signature program in some respects. It, it, it's how DHS, as I see it, is providing a suite of security services uh, examining incoming packets for the entire civilian sector of government. Uh, at least that was the, the vision. Um, is that complete? I mean, are you at the point where you're basically doing that for every agency in government? Sure, we are nearly there. Um, and I'll talk about the two programs separately very briefly because there's some confusion around what each of these do. But uh, Einstein is uh, part of the National Cyber Protection System, and Einstein refers to the sensors that are deployed uh, at um, the trusted Internet connections, so kind of sitting at the perimeter of um, agency networks. And uh, the... The goal of those Einstein sensors is to be able to look at and conduct analysis on NetFlow, or transiting in and out of agency networks, as well as be able to detect and prevent and most uniquely taking classified information and using it to um, defend uh unclassified networks. And so that's where we've been uh, spending a lot of time is uh, building that capability, um, building it with the agencies, building with it with the uh, Internet service providers for the federal government, and and, and looking at primarily uh, the defense of the perimeter of agency networks. And on the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, it originally started with the concept of DHS providing continuous monitoring as a service. And what that's evolved into is a, a very innovative program on several fronts, the first being from a, um, an appropriations and purchasing perspective. The Congress actually appropriates uh, my organization at, at DHS 
to um, work with agencies, define their requirements, and um, build uh, based off of uh, work with GSA and large contracting uh, capacities that they have there, uh, purchase tools and sort of leveraging the entire purchasing power of the government to create more effective cost models that we then purchase those tools, deploy them, internal to uh, government agency networks. And so these are uh, uh, sensors that allow us to automate our hardware and software asset management and um, will continue to evolve those capabilities. So that's local option? Is that that local option for particular uh, agencies? They can do it or not as they choose? Uh, they, they can do it or not as they, they choose. Um, the majority of agencies uh, do choose to do this. Well, all agencies have agreed to do it. We're in various stages of implementation depending upon the department or agency. And um, so it not only allows sort of... Uh, okay, so let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me ask you the hard question. Okay. Which agencies are farthest from actually doing that with you? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest Justice and HHS. Uh, no. Oh, okay. Um, All right. <laughs> they, uh, so the the way it, it is not always um, sort of up to the agency. Part of it has to do with the way the contracts were um, negotiated and and bid and and won in terms of where they are in the queue. So let and me can I so ask you it, another question on that? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, using signatures to stop incoming packets and compare the incoming packets to the signatures and bounce the bad uh, packets and the the malware. All good things to do and Mm state-of-the-art sometime uh, uh, back when I was in government. Um, But Mm -hmm. now, once people are in the network and and they can get in the network, they haven't had trouble doing that, uh, uh, moving laterally and uh, uh, engaging in behavior that has some signatures inside the network, but not on the periphery, um, is a major concern. And to find that, you really have to be watching everything that's happening inside the network. Uh, is Where is DHS on providing that kind of service to, uh, to other agencies or to itself? Um, as far as signature-based um, detection and prevention, we are not currently in any plans to deploy that internal to the agencies. Um, we, you know, every agency by law is responsible for their own cybersecurity, and what we talk about is a layered defense. And so we provide some capabilities, but agencies have to provide some of their own as well. And um, the uh, the CDM program. Uh, does provide a lot of capability to understand what's on your network in an automated way, who's on the network. And that um, is, is over the next month as we stand up what we call the federal dashboard. We'll actually um, automate those feeds back to DHS at our um, National Cyber Communications Integration Center. So I'm, so I'm we'll going have... I'm I'm to mm-hmm. guess that at the end of the day, mm-hmm. if, you, if all you can do is say, hey, we've got these great tools, why don't you use them? Uh, mm-hmm. you'll never get the kind of coverage you need and the weakest links are going to be subject to attack uh, uh, because they just don't get around to or they have some silly turf reason for not wanting to work with you or whatever. Um, and yeah. so your your ability to issue directives is going to be significant. I want to ask you about that. You've got the first binding operational 
directive. Boy, that's, that just does not sound like the DHS I used to know. So I, it's, it's quite exciting. Uh, binding operational directive to all federal civilian agencies, get Kaspersky out of your system in 90 days. Uh, um, how did you, um, what, what was it like to try to get that kind of a directive through the interagency process or did you not have to? Um, well, <laughs> we no, we didn't. We didn't have to. Um, it is a, a statutory authority granted to the secretary. Um, however, to to sort of your point before you evolved into the directive, you're absolutely right. It's uh, not just about giving and buying agency tools. In fact, we spend a lot of time and increasingly amount of a lot of resources helping agencies, whether it's through you know doing pen testing or full like you know, architecture reviews all the way to, um, you know, providing the mitigation plans, helping them do better. And so with the directives, uh, was a, a relatively recent authority that was uh, given to us. And um, we have issued a couple um, sort of looking at, um, you know, agencies need to patch their critical vulnerabilities. And we're able to um, scan for, for that activity, and we've actually been using uh, very in a very limited uh, sort of e- measurable uh, instances using that directive authority, and it has been proving to change behavior. The most recent one um, clearly was uh, something that we have uh, not done before. We did, um, like I said, we didn't have to uh, engage with the interagency, but of course we did because there's a lot of expertise. Um, we went through very thorough consultation with our partners and to uh, come to the conclusion that the the risk associated with, with using those uh, products is significant. And um, so the acting secretary uh, determined to take that action. So the directive says a couple of things about about the risk, mm-hmm. and, and one is that the Russian government has the authority to collect uh, um, from private companies anything that's crossing their networks. And that reminded me of something that Senator Shaheen had said in her anti-Kaspersky op-ed. She said, all of Kaspersky's servers are in Russia. I've never seen that publicly, but I, I, I thought there was a hint of that in what your directive said. Is, is that the case? You believe that all or most of, the, of Kaspersky's uh, data flows back to, uh, to Russia for analysis? I cannot comment on exactly how uh, Kaspersky's architected their system, but, um, but you know, they are subject to um, Russian laws, and we do have concerns about how those laws are exercised and the um, access to um, government information as a result. How hard is Kaspersky's stuff to find? My, my uh, understanding is there were a lot of people who incorporated Kaspersky into other products, so you wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. see it. Has that been a, an issue for, uh, for, company, for agencies that want to uh, comply with the directive? Um, yeah, as with any um, vendor, you have a lot of different relationships, uh, and uh, we have a pretty good sense of, of where those relationships lie. And um, so I, I think it's not always easy, but it, it's, it's not impossible. Any advice for companies that want to follow the 
federal government's uh, uh, action about what they should be doing to try to make sure they are not uh, relying on Kaspersky if they don't want to? You know, every company has to make their own risk decisions based off of the okay. <laughs> risk profile they're willing to accept. So I, I, I was involved uh, in the Abbott Labs heart mm-hmm. implant uh, uh, mm-hmm. flaw uh, representing the company that found the uh, the flaws. And I was struck by the extent to which the ICS cert um, had a major role in evaluating mm-hmm. what was an Internet of Things, you know, security uh, uh, problem uh, uh, and um, the extent to which the FDA relied on the ICS cert. Uh, um, do you think that's typical of what you, DHS is going to be doing, especially in the Internet of Things area? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, uh, we've been involved in um, being a trusted partner in the responsible vulnerability disclosure process, whether it's, you know, IT, OT systems, Internet of Things, variety of different categories. ICS CERT has been um, an you know, incredibly trusted partner uh, for years to, to be able to do this, and so it is definitely something that I see as a critical role for us going forward. So I saw recently a doctor say, um, I'm not planning to call my patients in for this upgrade to the firmware, even though, you know, the announcement suggested that a hacker could actually uh, uh, shock somebody to death if they could uh, get within 10 feet of them, uh, uh, that uh, uh, because there hasn't been a uh, an example of, a, of such an attack, uh, I, I, it seems to me there's still this deep cultural chasm between the medical profession which is increasingly digitizing everything, uh, and the uh, device makers who are digitizing everything, and the FDA, which is supposed to be regulating them, but which, you know, consists mainly of doctors, and the people who worry about cybersecurity. Uh, and, and DHS is kind of caught in the middle of that. Uh, you're, you're giving advice to people who just don't come from this frame of reference at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think um, you know the health sector, as our other sectors, are are learning very quickly. Um, the the cybersecurity risks inherent with the increasing digitization of the tools that either they're implanting in people or that they depend upon for records. Um, we're doing a lot of work to continue the education, and um, you know our role. Uh, I see it as working with security researchers, uh, device maker, manufacturers, and, and others to help understand vulnerabilities and then to spread the awareness that we need to, you know, get those vulnerabilities addressed. And, uh, but I, I agree. I think we, we need to, um, to continue to help people understand that this is just another safety issue and they need to treat it as such. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, any advice for the doctor who said, uh, you know, I'm going to wait until somebody's actually been killed with this uh, uh, before I start <laughs> advising my, my patients? <laughs> I would not agree with that advice. <laughs> All right. Uh, so last quest set of questions is about your 
your future. Uh, mm-hmm. um, the, there's been a lot of talk about whether there ought to be a cybersecurity department or whether uh, your office, the office that you're the acting head of, as I see it, uh, um, uh, which is cybersecurity and communications, ought to be um, a component within DHS, just like FEMA or the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. uh, um, and also whether the parts of your directorate, the NPPD, which don't deal with cyber directly, uh, the Federal Protective Service and the uh, uh, Infrastructure Protection Unit, which is focused on terrorist and other attacks on physical and human infrastructure, whether they really belong together. Um, I know, you know, you're not going to make that call by yourself. Where do you see that shaping up? What uh, uh, Suzanne Spaulding, who had the leadership before you, was very strong on keeping physical and cyber uh, security together. Do you think that will continue into the, the, this administration? Uh, yes. I think, um, you know, this administration also very supportive of us becoming a, a full operational component within the department, um, working very closely with Chairman McCall and uh, you know, various different entities uh, that uh, need to support this as well. There's, you may know uh, Chairman McCall is able to pass some legislation out of committee. I look forward to continuing to work. Uh, I think it's very important that our name reflects our mission, not only for the morale of our own workforce, but for, for those that we're trying to recruit whether to work for us or to be a partner with us. I think it's very important that the um, the cybersecurity and the critical infrastructure work stay tightly linked. Uh, as we all know, there's always a lot of crossover, particularly in the areas that we're most concerned in from a homeland security and a national security perspective. And I also think it's important that we have the ability to restructure our, ourselves in accordance with uh, the the growth in our in our mission. So um, we you know we're, we're very hopeful that this will happen uh, in the near future, and um, I think it's an exciting time for yeah. us. Yeah. Uh, so one last question because I have to ask this. Mm-hmm. Everybody's talking okay. about everybody's talking about the Equifax breach. Um, yes. And. Um, uh, it, my observation is it might have more uh, less effect on DHS and cybersecurity in the federal agencies than it has on individual workers. But I wonder if you mm-hmm. have uh, uh, an assessment of that hack and advice to people who are worried that, uh, uh, you know, since it's very likely that their data was compromised, uh, very worried about what to do about it. Sure. Um, we have uh, published some uh, technical information on our U.S. CERT website. So first you know, and foremost, network defenders should make sure that they are taking advantage of that and learning from what happened with Equifax as far as um, you know, the, the scale and kind of what exactly happened. That's all still under investigation. Um, you know, in, in consumers, uh, uh, consumers always need to be uh, alert. They need to always be on the alert for use of their uh, information in unauthorized ways and use of their credit cards. Um, but this is this is a big deal, and um, you know we'll continue to engage and try to understand uh, what happened. Um, and 
unfortunately, that's kind of all I can say right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, the implications for federal for the federal government strike me as pretty modest. Uh, for federal yeah. workers, you would think they'd be pretty big, except uh, uh, the Chinese already have all our OPM files, so I'm not sure what more there is to, to know about me. Um, but I, I, my last question for you is, are you going to be testifying, giving speeches, any other uh, events that you'd like our listeners to know about? Um, I, I imagine I'll have a lot of testifying in front of me. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, you know, October is uh, Cyber Awareness Month, and uh, myself and a lot of other DHS leadership will be out there, partnership with uh, you know companies, organizations such as yours, and I really want to uh, get sort of continue to. Uh, elevate awareness uh, both with the the public, the consumers, uh, everything from you know first graders learning how to be cyber literate and safe, all the way up to corporate boards. So, um, and uh, if I, if I do end up testifying in the near future, I'll, I'll make sure you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be looking forward to it, uh, Jeanette. All right. Well, thanks, Jeanette Manfra. I and I should correct your title uh, now that you're confirmed and uh, uh, stuck with the job. Uh, you're the Assistant Secretary for uh, Cybersecurity and Communications at the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks to you, also to Stephen Heifetz and Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, who participated in the news roundup. Thank you. Okay, well, this has been episode 179 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, if you've got a guest interviewee and they join us on the show, you'll, we'll send you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we're going to be joined by John Yu and Jeremy Radkin in a episode that will cover Cyber, robots, space weapons, what more could you ask for? Uh, also, Richard Danzig, the former Secretary of the Navy and a deep thinker on uh, technology issues, will give us his latest technology nightmares for government. Uh, Martin Mikos of HackerOne is going to finally uh, explain to us all how bug bounties actually work. It's trickier than you might think, especially in government. Uh, uh, and, of course, mark your calendars for November 7th, Election Day, at least in Virginia, uh, when we're going to have a live, in-person, at DuPont Circle uh, um, a version of the podcast interview where we talk about election cybersecurity. Uh, so come on down. Uh, we've got a website uh, at steptoe.com. Uh, where you can register. Uh, we hope you join us uh, um, at that event and on the podcast as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 